I'm your health coach, Melissa Lee. Here at Thriving with Nourishment Health, I provide women with the resources to reclaim fertility and celebrate periods through the lens of functional medicine. It is time to empower ourselves with natural solutions over band-aid medicines. We will get to the root cause of symptoms to see the bigger picture. Let us find the ability to heal ourselves, get back to Mother Nature, and live in a healthier world. Hi everyone, say hi to Dr. Rebecca Hughes. She's a highly sought after functional medicine naturopath with a special interest in skin conditions, women's health, children's health, autoimmunity, and digestive health. Recently, Dr. Rebecca received a BEMA Clinic Excellence Award in recognition of her commitment to delivering high-quality, results-driven healthcare to her patients. So I'm really happy to have her on the show today to chat about PCOS and how she approaches um, PCOS via functional medicine approach. So welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited to be talking about this subject because it, it intersects with my work on acne a lot. And I also yeah. think it's a condition that's kind of um, misdiagnosed and mismanaged and that, you know, women are, I think, told terrible things about their polycystic ovarian syndrome that has them feel like they've got no, no choice and no hope. So, but, but I believe that there's a lot of options. Yes, I love that you said that. Um, so before we get into all that goodness, um, could you let the listeners know what is functional medicine and how it differs from like conventional healthcare? That's a really big question. Um, functional medicine, I suppose what we're, firstly, how it differs, I suppose, to, fun to regular medicine is like rather than focusing on one system or one organ at a time, we view our patients as a whole of system um, organism, which is exactly what we are, right? We're existing right. in the world with all of our bits and pieces and we're not just, and, and even just that we're existing in the world within an environment and within a socio, a social, economic and emotional sphere, right? So that there's all these different external aspects affecting our health and well-being, as well as the interconnectedness and complexity of all of our different areas of health impacting and affecting one another. So I, I think that's probably the best answer I can give you about mm -hmm. functional medicine. And in terms of the actual approach, I suppose that's going to vary a bit from one practitioner to another. Um, I, I tend to do, and I think a lot of functional medicine practitioners use a lot of testing to collect extra data. And it's usually sometimes it's similar testing to what you might get from your doctor, but sometimes it departs quite radically from what you would get from a regular physician. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree about the whole multi-system, very multi-layered um, perspective on humans. Like we are influenced by society and culture and, and, and the environment. So it's not basically just, you know, putting a Band-Aid or like just giving you a prescription basically for every symptom that you have. Exactly. So, okay. So, you know, when it comes to PCOS, what are some misconceptions you have, you have seen in your practice? There are a lot. It's funny. I was writing some of them down in preparation for this. I was thinking about some of my patients and, you know, what they've been told. And I think there are, there are misconceptions around um, firstly, 
uh, accurate diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I think it is um, both, I think it's both misdiagnosed and overdiagnosed at the same right. time in some, in some patients completely missed. And in some patients, it's the, it's the go-to diagnosis if the patient has um, irregular or absent periods. It's like without any further investigation, oh, they must have PCOS. Right. If, um, they, if and, they have irregular periods, that's like the first thing. That's yeah. 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 And that may or may not be the case, you know, that they have mm -hmm. polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I, I suppose stepping back a bit as a functional medicine practitioner and naturopath, it is, well, how useful is the diagnostic label polycystic ovarian syndrome anyway? I think it's a, a useful label for talking about something with another health professional and with your patient, it might be useful to be able to abbreviate and put it into a, a box and say PCOS. But sometimes it's an unhelpful label because for starters, there may not even be cystic ovaries involved. Mm -hmm. So you can still meet the diagnostic. There's two sets of diagnostic criteria, you know, the, the Rotterdam criteria and, and um, the androgen excess and PCOS society criteria and either of those you, you definitely don't have to have polycystic ovaries to meet the diagnostic criteria so how confusing does that come for patients that is really confusing <laughs> it's confusing right it's like oh my doctor has told me I have PCOS but I don't have cysts on my ovaries or the absent or, or me saying you meet the diagnostic criteria and they're saying yeah but my doctor has told me that I've had this pelvic ultrasound that I don't have cysts on my ovaries. So how can I possibly have mm -hmm. polycystic ovarian syndrome? So it's really, I think more a, um, we should think of it more in the realm of um, a condition of both hormonal imbalance that's usually characterized by an androgen excess and, and sometimes with a metabolic picture as well and not always with a metabolic picture I would have to say not all women have insulin resistance also mm -hmm. who have polycystic ovarian syndrome and that's another myth and misconception I have treated very healthy body weight healthy insulin picture women who still meet the diagnostic criteria so I think their myths around it the other myth is that the oral contraceptive pill is going to be the magic wand for your polycystic ovarian mm. syndrome. I'm so glad you said that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is certainly the go-to prescription in general medicine for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, what are some other things? Uh, I feel like one of the biggest ones that my clients tell me is that they go in and the doctors tell them they can't get pregnant ever oh yes yes, yes like that's a really big one or the, the next one that's coming to mind is you just have to lose weight oh yeah right <laughs> that's that's the next yeah. one that's that's um, true that's true it's funny the thing about fertility right that they are told mm -hmm. this because some of my most fertile patients have been women with a diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome and that as soon as and usually they are still you know, they might still be controlling their fertility with the oral contraceptive pill. And when they come off the oral contraceptive pill, bam, they're pregnant, like straight away. And, and I think that is a massive misconception and really damaging and sad because 
if you believe that, if you believe that, and this, and I have to, I think back to a patient who I had in the last year, and I'll share a lot about her case because I think it's quite interesting that she was told in her late teens, early 20s, you have severe polycystic ovarian syndrome, you will not get pregnant without um, the assistance of IVF. So you should go on the pill until you want to have children. And then when you want to have children, you should do another type of hormone therapy called IVF. Right. And so the, the thing about going on the oral contraceptive pill, and, and Lara Bryden talks about this as well. She's a naturopathic doctor. Oh, um, yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, she's amazing. If you haven't read her books, read her books. Um, you'll learn a lot about your, your own body just by reading her books. And um, the, the, the oral contraceptive pill essentially pauses your reproductive development. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you take the oral contraceptive pill, which a lot of really young women, teenagers, young women in their 20s, are, as soon as there's any kind of problem with their cycle, whether it be irregularity, pain, heavy bleeding, they're immediately prescribed the pill and then that presses pause. So basically until, so let's say you take the pill, which is not uncommon now for like 10 years, that's a normal time <laughs> it to, normal to take now. it. It's like, if you take it when you're 17, when, you're, when you resume your period without the pill at 27, you're still like a 17 year old. So you will still have to go through all of the developmental stages which you were going through, which were quite normal. Like if you mm -hmm. think about it, it's normal for a menstrual cycle to go through um, a, a stage of adjustment during your late teens and early twenties. But now that's pathologized, basically it's made to be a disease and then given a prescription. So taking the pill for your polycystic ovarian syndrome is only gonna delay mm -hmm. what you have to deal with. It's right. never never ever going to be the solution that makes so much sense to me and even for me like I was put on the pill like I took it for four years I think and I got off it when I asked my gynecologist how long I have to be on this and she said for the rest of your life and she said it's not going to affect your fertility and I really really did not believe her so I got off it um, you know by myself but um, that is yeah that is actually like a really really big thing um when it comes to like fertility later on. And I assert that that is a falsehood that the pill will not affect your fertility because that's another phenomenon that I'm seeing in clinical practice with the length of time now that women stay on the pill because they're told mm. that it's safe. They're told that everything will be normal once they come off the pill and, and, and everything is not normal when they come off the pill. For some women, their ovaries have completely like I call it gone to sleep right you know because they, they're not they're, they haven't been working they've been suppressed yeah and they're and now the connection between their hypothalamus and their ovaries so it's the hypothalamus that triggers the ovaries to do their job and ovulate that connection appears to have been interrupted for far too long mm -hmm. and now the ovaries are no longer responsive to what's called the trophic hormones like the triggering hormones from the hypothalamus and I've seen like devastating effects of women taking the pill and not for, not, not even because they had something going on with their period. They were, they were using the pill for contraception mm -hmm. and were advised that it was perfectly safe to use for contraception for up to 10, 15 years. 
and then they come off the pill in their mid-30s because they're ready to have babies and their ovaries have gone into retirement you know like right. it's really it's it's not as safe um i i think for fertility as women are led to believe also when you said um you know people are using the pill for contraceptive purposes um what about like acne i feel like it's also being prescribed for women with acne or even uh, like other conditions that are oh yeah 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 totally not related it is, yeah yeah it's considered to be the the panacea for acne as well and um mm. And acne certainly is like what, you know, bringing this back to the conversation of polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's what it meets one of the diagnostic criteria called signs of androgenization. Mm -hmm. And signs of androgenization means signs of excess, I'm going to call them male hormones for this because it's, you know, it's not a technical term and right. androgens is the term, but male hormones. And mostly people think about testosterone but actually there are other male hormones like um, androsterone and DHEA. So you can have other forms of, and, and most, most importantly, 5-alpha-DHT, which is a metabolite of testosterone. Mm -hmm. And those hormones are um, often, not always, but often responsible for driving the acne in women, like persistent acne in women. I'm not talking about premenstrual breakouts okay. i'm talking about um cystic persistent acne that that persists throughout the entire menstrual cycle and persists over years mm -hmm. so, yeah and given that the pill is mostly a combination of estrogen and progesterone it's it's not really the solution for the high androgens sometimes it can um through its suppression of the hypothalamus can can suppress the production of testosterones and androgens as well. But here's the kicker. Once you go off the pill and even women who've never had acne before experience this, there's an androgen surge for three months after you go off the pill. So a lot of women get post pill um, acne. Mm -hmm. And then of course, because it's really alarming for them and it's horrible and it goes on for up to three months, then they go off to the dermatologist or they're referred to the dermatologist by the GP. And because the, the acne has been there for three months, then comes the prescription of Accutane. Now, I would urge anyone who has acne to avoid that drug. It has some alarming side effects mm -hmm. and go and read about them and inform yourself before you choose to take Accutane. Um, effects on the liver, mental health, um, the your actual DNA like there's there's a lot of serious effects and so the pill you know it's for some women it is the solution for their acne while they're taking the pill but again it's only delaying the situation mm -hmm. especially if the if the acne is related to PCOS then like like I said before the pill is putting your PCOS on pause and so it's putting all the symptoms of the PCOS on pause as well so right. as soon as you pill and you want to get pregnant and this is the case with a lot of my female patients is that they are so scared about coming off the pill because they're so worried about their acne coming back because it has huge impacts right it has it's not just it's not just a skin condition it's a skin condition that's on your face yeah for sure body image terrible it fires up and all of your all of your um feelings about 
being inadequate and yeah, body image stuff. And so it has a massive psychological impact. And it's, it's such a shame that women would um, put off their fertility, like postpone their fertility in the name of not wanting to get acne. And I completely understand it. Like I completely understand the psychology, but I think, like I said, I think there's a lot of solutions. And the pill only makes insulin resistance worse, by the way. Mm-hmm. It actually doesn't make insulin resistance better. So it's going to compound if your if your PCOS is triggered and driven by insulin resistance, which it isn't always, as you pointed to before, it isn't always a weight issue. But if it is, if that's part of your PCOS picture, then going on the pill is going to be worse for you because it's going to make it harder for you when you come off. And I have to say that when you were talking about the excess androgens, like a lot of PCOS women also suffer from like hirsutism, which is like, you know, the excess hair loss or hair growth. Um, you know, when you encounter that in your practice, like how do you, um, like, what do you see? Like, are they on a certain medication for that too? Or is it just kind of like the same, like just a pill? Oh, it really depends on who the prescriber has been. So sometimes it's the pills. Sometimes it's um, spironolactone. Mm-hmm. Um, as yeah, spironolactone a, is a big one. Yeah, and um, but there are plenty of natural alternatives, you know. And, and look, I don't. I, I'm going to list off a few, but I certainly wouldn't suggest people go about self-prescribing herbs until they've actually had some medical advice, because mm-hmm. herbs are not herbs are drugs as well they're not just benign substances and so you if you're at if you're not using any other form of contraception there's a whole range of herbs you shouldn't be taking because they could be um, harmful to unborn babies but some of those herbs are um, peony and licorice saw palmetto nettle rosemary spearmint um, even zinc as a nutritional supplement there, there are plenty of things that can help with um, hirsutism and mostly a lot of them inhibit this enzyme called um, 5-alpha DHT. And that's a substance that I referred to earlier because that's a breakdown product of testosterone. Mm-hmm. But sometimes that breakdown product of testosterone can actually hang around. Like, it, And this is due to genetic um, individualities in people like we've all got our own um, genetic individualities especially with our hormones and they're driven so that's driven by dna that creates enzymes that function to to break down different hormones and sometimes those enzymes work too slow or sometimes they work too fast and that's how you can end up with the imbalances but 5-alpha dht is never as far as i know definitely in australia is not measured in blood and that's possibly because it, it may not be able to be detected easily in a, in a serum assay, mm-hmm. but I, I use urinary metabolites for assessing hormones because I find them to be far more sensitive. And do um, you use the Dutch test for that? I use the Dutch test. Okay. Yeah. And that uh, detects 5-alpha DHT. And that's a more, it's actually more potent than testosterone itself. Right. It's, I think it's like, oh, I can't remember the factor, but it's something ridiculous, like 10 times or something more potent than, than testosterone. So th- that's another myth, I suppose, from a diagnosis perspective, is that 
often doctors will do the right thing and measure testosterone and measure five, uh, the free androgen index. And maybe they might even measure androsterone and DHEA and still find nothing, like find mm -hmm. normal levels. But the thing is, if you haven't, you haven't done the full picture if you haven't measured 5-alpha DHT. And if you can't measure it in blood, you need to measure it in urine to see if that's out of balance. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that makes sense, like, you know, to do a full testing of like the bigger picture and not just like specific markers. Um, you know, since we got into like the whole herbs thing for hirsutism, so let's get into it. Like when addressing PCOS from a functional medicine approach, like what is your workflow or what are like some of the things you consider? Hmm. Well, uh, firstly, I never assume that it's just a condition of the ovaries <laughs> because yeah. Because it might be the ovaries where it's appearing, or it might it might be an androgen excess, etc. But certainly, when I when I'm looking at a woman's hormonal environment, preferably what I'll always get is data about her thyroid, her, her adrenals, and her ovaries, because those three um, endocrine organs or hormonal organs, they are all in symphony with one another. They're all impacting one another all of the time. So simply because someone is presenting with some kind of, um, let's say dysfunction for want of a better word with their ovulation, mm -hmm. you can't assume that it's polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it, it might be PCOS, but they also might have a comorbid, they, 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 a co-occurring diagnosis of Hashimoto's disease. Right, or something to you do know, with like poor adrenals. That's yeah, they might be adrenally yeah. taxed. They might have, in fact, I've seen this a lot this year as well, they might have high prolactin and prolactin impairs ovulation. Mm -hmm. Like it's in direct opposition to to progesterone. And, and prolactin can be driven up. Well, I mean, mostly prolactin is from breastfeeding, but I've certainly seen it um, in non-breastfeeding women and stress can drive up prolactin. So... There's so many, and, and that's a hormone as well. So there are so many different elements of a woman's hormonal environment where we're complex creatures hormonally, you know, like yeah. there's day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year variations. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't include pregnancy. That's just normal life <laughs> being yeah. a woman. <laughs> so. Yes, there's so much, so much there to think about. Um, I love that. So you look at, so basically you look at like all the hormones first sort of thing and you run some testing. To just I run a lot of testing and then, and then, and I think this is um, useful to also consider like is we just, we, and we touched on it before, is there are different types of polycystic ovarian syndrome? Like is yours an insulin resistant type of polycystic ovarian syndrome? If it looks like that. So the first thing I will do if someone looks like that they've got, because um, they might be a healthy body weight, but still have a, a, an androgen or an android body shape. And that means that they might, as a female, they might not have a small waist. They're, they might look a little bit more square or apple shaped. So that's very easy to do is you use a tape measure. It's the cheapest clinical tool you can find is taking someone's waist measurement. Now, um, the the International Diabetes Federation say that for Caucasian women, that your waist circumference should be less than 80 centimetres. 
there's some very there's a little bit of leeway in that that up to you could you could say that up to 89 centimeters is safe but i'd say once you're getting closer to 89 centimeters you're approaching insulin resistance mm -hmm. but, um, and that's just through body shape but then what if your polycystic ovarian syndrome is driven by inflammation so right. what if there's a, an underlying inflammatory condition that's actually causing cortisol to rise because cortisol is your natural anti-inflammatory and then the cortisol is actually driving the hormonal imbalance of the polycystic ovarian syndrome. So basically this is women who are inflamed by, you know, whatever factors that is driving up inflammation or they might mm -hmm. be highly stressed and they have too much cortisol and that could be worsening the inflammation, um, which contributes to PCOS. Yeah, that's right. Right. Okay. And then there's actual the traditional androgen-driven DHEA PCOS, and then there's post-pill PCOS, which I don't think is considered either because if you had regular cycles before you went on the pill, mm -hmm. it's quite likely that if, if coming off the pill that you now have irregular cycles, that it's not you, that it's the drug that you were put on. And... And going back to it's not you, I suppose, I think in especially in the realm of insulin resistant PCOS and being told that you just need to lose weight is there's a lot of shaming that goes on of women who have insulin resistant PCOS. Mm -hmm. And when doctors say things like, oh, you just need to lose weight, that is such a damaging remark. Yeah, you know, to, it's very uh, insensitive. To, it's extremely insensitive and it's not easy for women who have insulin resistance and PCOS to lose weight. It's not as easy as the next person. They actually are, they're working against a genetic picture that drives their PCOS. It doesn't mean that they can't lose weight. Definitely not. I'm not saying that they can't lose weight, but I'm just saying that they have to be provided with the correct resources, tools, and also, you can't just come at the condition from purely treating the metabolism. You actually have to interrupt the picture at many different points in the cycle. You have to interrupt all of the hormonal drivers that are at play and interrupt the insulin resistance at the same time. And probably if there is any inflammation, drive that down also. Because being in insulin resistant is in and of itself an inflammatory state. Right. It's yeah. So, so I think that's where the functional medicine approach is zooming out and going, okay, what are all the things that this body is dealing with right now? And, and to, and if you treat all of those areas concurrently in PCOS, I believe that you've got a, a faster, a faster outcome and certainly mm -hmm. a more long lasting outcome for, for women. I think, um, you know, whatever you just explained is really clear and also how like a functional medicine practitioner would approach it compared to a conventional one. Um, I do. I also tell my clients a lot that like usually the weight comes off at the very last because there's so much happening that we need to address first and your body is trying to survive. It's not going to be like, you know, trying to lose weight because for the body, um, you know, keeping the body fat is a way of surviving. 
Um, mm. Especially yeah, if the person's well, really stressed and all that. Yeah, look, the reasons why we retain body fat, I suppose, are varied. Sometimes it like because uh, inflammation interrupts um, the hormones that modulate fat retention and fat loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a problem. Like it interrupts the normal metabolism. Cortisol is a stress hormone causes you to um, deposit fat around the middle, especially. So that's because cortisol is actually causing glucose to be released all the time via um, uh, from the liver and from the muscles. So normally what would happen is you eat, insulin gets released to mop up all of the glucose and put it into your cells. So there's a period of, and that's why also snacking is probably counterproductive in insulin resistance and as is eating beyond an eight hour window. You should, if you've got insulin resistance, you should try and eat within an eight hour window because then there's less insulin and glucose floating around for Mm -hmm. long periods. Sort of eat, have the glucose spike, have the insulin bring back down the glucose, have a space, eat again, have a space, eat again. So that's, that's one um, weight management tool that I think is effective. Look at, we are not unlike any other creature on the planet. Evolution drives us. Our whole purpose of being here is to procreate the species. Full mm-hmm. stop. That is all. It, everyone would like to think that it's more complicated than that, but it is not more complicated than that. Mother Nature just wants to survive long enough to procreate and, and create more of the species. So in order to make hormones to do that job, you actually need some fat. for the hormones to be drawn from, which is why also losing too much fat mass as a woman can cause amenorrhea, like a lack of a period or an irregular period. That's why it's it's well known that elite athletes, some of the female elite athletes just don't, they don't menstruate. Mm -hmm. Their body has stopped menstruating because essentially it feels like it's survival is at threat because there is, massive output with not enough probably it would if you're an elite athlete I'm not but I can imagine that it would be very (laughs) difficult very difficult to keep up with the calorie intake that you need to support the energy expenditure so you're probably in a calorie deficit most of the time because of your training schedule so therefore you're not going to retain fat it's always going to be used up and mobilized as fuel to support your activity so your body would definitely feel like it's a threat. That's a, that's a physiological, like a physical threat to the female body because mm-hmm. it's not really natural for us to have really high muscle mass compared to fat mass. But then, of course, there is the, um, the threat of life itself now. Like, whereas before you could say, oh, yeah, our, our life was at threat through things like famine or our life was at threat through predators or... Our life was at threat through the neighboring village invading, you know, mm-hmm. but now mostly in the Western world, I wouldn't say in all countries, certainly not, but in the Western world, we don't have to deal with those threats, but we have other threats that our, well, that our brain interprets as threats. Right. It's not that they necessarily are threats. It's like our, our, our career and our mortgage and our family and our husbands and managing all of life and setting in traffic 
Being, being in Texas. <laughs> yeah, there's, I, th I would say, and even, and, and then they're the things that we can perceive, uh, you know, cognizantly. And so they're impacting the, the adrenals. So like you said, then there's more cortisol. Basically, the more stress hormones you pump out, the less resources you have available to make your sex hormones. Because like I said, it comes, all your hormones come from two places. I didn't say this yet, actually. They come from cholesterol and DHEA. Mm -hmm. They're the only two places. And DHEA is, you know, primarily stored in your, and made in the adrenals. It's an adrenal reserve, essentially. And cholesterol, you get, you manufacture it in your liver and you also eat it. And, it get, and sometimes fats get converted into cholesterol particles. So you've got, you've got two sets of reserves. And so you've got to use those reserves wisely. Right. And yeah. if, you're, if you're stressed most of the time and, and you don't even know that you're stressed because that's part of it, right? Because stress has become the new normal of like, I'm stressed and I don't sleep enough and or I sleep six or seven hours a night and that's fine and people are soldiering through life, then how can you expect to have enough resources to make another human being? Which is what ovulation is. The whole mm -hmm. purpose of ovulation is to make another human being. Now, that's, yeah. if you think about that, that's a big task for the body to make another human being. Yes, I, I love the whole picture that you just painted. Um, ovulation is the key event of the menstrual cycle. Um, and it also brought me to this concept that I heard about or learned about is that we are all like a lot of us are in like a sympathetic mode, like basically in a very stress mode and doing all these, all these things, but expecting parasympathetic results. So like, you know, expecting yes. to feel good and whatever, like lose weight and be all that. So like the life, the choices that we make is not kind of, you know, resulting in the life experience that we want. Yeah. And this is certainly something that, you know, in the practice that I'm at, we talk to our patients a lot over and over and over again. They probably get sick of it, but um, <laughs> we we really do emphasize the importance of uh, the, and just in case people don't know, the parasympathetic state is the state where you're at rest and you feel, I, I'd say to my patients, it's when you feel safe. Mm -hmm. So when you're in sympathetic state, you, you probably feel at threat in some way. And when, and that includes things like anxious, worried, you know, all, all those sorts of experiences and emotional experiences. And when you're in the parasympathetic state, you feel content, you feel safe, you feel at rest. And that, I think, is a, a state of mind that myself included, that not many of us are really familiar with anymore. Because even if you don't experience stress um, and you would describe yourself as stressed, if you think about the amount of stimulation that mm -hmm. we are at the effect of now, just in the form of light, sound, information, electromagnetic frequencies, just those things that in the general Western world, if you live in a city that you're exposed to every single day, how could your nervous system 
actually naturally be at rest. We now have to work at being at rest, which is crazy. Yeah, it's <laughs> but, like it should be normal, but we're like, yeah, we're having to slow down and be mindful and do all these things. Um, and that actually, you know, really worsens like the reg the regularity of our periods, and also kind of bringing back to PCOS is like it's just worsening it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I want to just address one more myth that, um, and and it, it bugs me because it's at that, that time in life when I think young women are like in their teens and their early twenties. They don't necessarily understand a lot about their body. And they certainly don't have enough self-confidence to disagree with the doctor usually, you know, mm -hmm. and yes, I've because there. there's a power, there's a power dynamic, right. In a medical yeah. relationship that there shouldn't be, but there is. And uh, it's very normal for a menstrual cycle to take several years to reorganize, to organize itself into regularity. And it's also very normal for teenage girls to have polycystic ovaries it's part of their development so to even be diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome before you're 25 is probably a dangerous diagnosis because what if actually those cystic ovaries are just part of you and your development and that if you gave your body everything that it needed and you didn't panic about that and you just let it run its course maybe your body would its inherent wisdom would know what to do yeah without any intervention from a doctor from a functional medicine practitioner from no one maybe it would just sort itself out mm -hmm. your body's with, very wise it could probably yeah. do that <laughs> so i think that's the one thing that i would really like people to be like women to be left with is that I think there's an over, like I call it a pathologizing of female gynecological health. It's like everything becomes a disease and a condition. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you've got painful periods. It shouldn't be that way. Oh, you've got irregular periods. It shouldn't be that way. Uh, I mean, it's really, who said? Who said it shouldn't be that way? Mm -hmm. and, 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 and particularly in the realm of painful periods, and I think it's, it's sort of... Um, this is another conversation about resilience, I suppose, but it's, it is normal to have some discomfort when you first start bleeding, like either the day before or the day of your bleed, there are very few women who don't report any signs of discomfort. Now, I'm not saying people should tolerate extreme pain because that is bad. You know, that's really, I'm definitely not saying that anyone should tough it out. However, to have some minor back pain, to have a little bit of abdominal discomfort, some minor cramping. It's, it's not a disease yet, you know, and yeah. certainly there are some lifestyle things that you could put in place that would probably make those symptoms go away. Like if most, if, if most um, women didn't have dairy in their diet, probably a lot of their inflammation would decline and they probably wouldn't experience a lot of those factors anyway, you know, of, of what they're experiencing. But, but I'm saying that just because you have pain one month also doesn't mean you're going to have pain the next month. Each menstrual, each, each cycle is actually different. And that's another, I suppose, misunderstanding is that, that all of your cycles are going to be exactly the same. Of course they're not. Yeah. Because your, your cycle as, as, and I love it the way Lara Bryden talks about it is 
regard your cycle and your period as your report card for your health. Yes, I love that. And also that also brings into mind like charting, cycle charting. So I started charting um, and it's really, um, you know, easy to be wanting to predict ovulation like in the next month, like, oh, I ovulated on this day, I'm going to ovulate the next month. And then when you really start to chart and know your body, you realize that it's always different and it's affected by stress and whatever you're Mm. eating or like even if you're traveling um and so you know using the menstrual cycle as like the report card or even like a vital sign is so um empowering Mm, absolutely yeah um oh my god I said there was one more thing but there's one more thing (laughs) um and and that is assuming that um and this is addressed in the period pain repair manual by Lara Bryden is hypothalamic amenorrhea which means that you're not ovulating at all, ever. So polycystic ovarian syndrome, usually there's some ovulation. There's occasional ovulation. It may not be predictable. It certainly usually isn't predictable, but it's, it is happening. It's maybe every three or four months, you know, but with hypothalamic amenorrhea, there's no ovulation at all. And, and it's driven by completely, it, it, it's a completely different mechanism and the treatment is completely different also. The diagnosis and the treatment is different. And usually the case is quite, it's quite the opposite is that, and, and not many women want to hear this, but in hypothalamic amenorrhea, usually what's required is an increase in calories. Yeah, eating more, exercising eating less. less. <laughs> yeah, and gaining some body fat and having your body feel like it's safe to ovulate and safe to produce another human. Because <laughs> that's ultimately, if you think about it, what it's all about. Yeah, that, that is the bottom line of today's episode is to just make yourself <laughs> feel safe so that ovulation can happen. Yeah. Well, you know, that was like a really great conversation. I felt like you dropped many, many truth bombs and like outlined <laughs> you know, a bigger picture of how to look at PCOS and also some other hormonal conditions. So thank mm-hmm. you so much for that. Um, you know, for, for listeners who are especially like in Australia, like where can they find you? Um, I practice at Melbourne Functional Medicine. So it's www.melbournefunctionalmedicine.com.au. Uh, and there are ways that people can book a. They can just go to the website and book a discovery call and see if it's... Um, an approach that they want to enter into because I work with patients inside a six-month program and I think especially for menstrual irregularities and issues that's a really good chunk of time to get things sorted because there is no overnight magic wand silver bullet that that healthily restores uh, hormonal function mm-hmm. you know it really yeah. does take time to do it in a in a healthy and long-lasting way but um yeah look we get we get great results and you know that patient that i talked about right at the beginning she'd been told that she um you know that she wouldn't have children without ivf and right. her when she first came to see me her progesterone was 1.5 and it had been 1.5 for a really long time and that's that's below even like just to put it into perspective in the first half of your cycle your even your progesterone should be at least five, but hers was even below that. And now her, um, I was looking at her charts today. 
her progesterone is 67.2. And she, awesome. Yeah, it's incredible. And she's had three or four so far natural menstrual cycles. And she hasn't had that since she was a teenager and now she's 35. That's incredible. I love that. Mm. love that you shared that. Um, yeah, I will definitely put the website into the show notes and everything else that we kind of talked about. Um, mm. And thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome.